Welcome everyone. So um, this is the third episode of IPL, Innocence Project London. So the first one, uh, we introduced our project. And then in the second one, you heard from students firsthand about how they have been uh, working on the project and what impact uh, the project had on them. And then now this... Um, this podcast is actually emerging from the second episode where um, we talked about, uh, students talked about what the model or what kind of innocence person could look like in, you know, people's eyes. And, uh, well, this, this, and, and by the way, we are doing this podcast somehow in like a, a mid lockdown from home, uh, kind of two meter distance away. Yes, we are socially, acceptably socially distanced. <laughs> I think you're fine, Teresa. Yes, most definitely. Physically distant, not yes. socially. Socially, hopefully. We... Physically, socially, I think it all merges into one these days. <laughs> yes, yes. As long as you're two, two meters away from everybody, it's all okay. Exactly. And, and the, the whole purpose of the podcast, hopefully on, on a larger scale, would be to be uh, emotionally and socially closer connected. to each other. Yes. Yeah, more connected. Definitely. So, so I mean, uh, Louis, so this idea mm-hmm. emerged when you were talking to the students. And uh, one of the main aspects of this idea is that um, we look a certain way and then we live in a certain way Mm -hmm. and then we see someone who maybe look a bit different and also live a very different life and at times our species and life in general has problem relating to something which is different Mm -hmm. and uh, it's hard it's i think it's one of the hardest thing to accept something which is so far away from what you can relate to absolutely but when it comes to justice system when it comes to people's uh, life and death situation that thing is now not a benign kind of a mundane problem of your daily life or you see someone on train and you might not, you know, behave or give them a smile. Now it's uh, literally their uh, life and their family's happiness or, or, or tragedy is hanging now um, in the hand of few people, maybe possibly, um, or someone, you know, making that decision. Mm. And at that point, I, I i mean, I guess the model of an innocent person, how they believe it to be, it's the most important thing. Is is, is that what you are thinking? Uh, and, and tell me um, how you have seen this played out in all of the justice system that you are working around. Yeah, so... From the second episode with my students, they started, or one of them actually, brought up the facts of how they'd struggled initially to understand that the client that they were working with, Leon Wilson, was innocent because he had previous convictions. Um, And because of that, they, this, this student, was thinking, well... You know, he obviously has a tendency to act and behave in a certain way. So therefore, surely that makes him more likely to be guilty of this crime. Um, And they struggled that actually somebody could have previous convictions, but still be innocent of the crime for which they, you know, they stand to maintain their innocence for. And so we got onto this idea about 
we all have in our minds what we want the ideal innocent person to look like. And, you know, they have an alibi. They very clearly weren't there at the time that the offence was committed. They have a nice life, a nice simple life. They're a good person. You know, they've worked hard. All these stereotypes that you can imagine of what the ideal innocent person looks like to us. But actually, that doesn't figure or play out in the practical reality of life really as we see it so innocence is not ideal it doesn't come in a neat little package it doesn't come with an individual who has no criminal records who has um you know a nice house a good job a, a great great prospects a great background to their life that's not what your ideal innocent person looks like and so I thought it'd be interesting, Raza, to talk to you um, and for the purpose of this podcast a little bit about why we have those images in our mind and where they come from in terms of this ideal innocent person, this ideal model of innocence that um, students who come to work on the Innocence Project London struggle with sometimes because, you know, that our clients don't present with the ideal innocence model. Um, and sometimes that's a bit tricky for them to get over. Yeah. And you mentioned when we were discussing about this idea first uh, regarding the media. So I, I, I can give a very brief example that uh, when I was in university, mm -hmm. um, my sociology professor, uh, and this is the first time I came towards uh, understanding, you know, these social biases and became really interested and to be a social researcher that was the first thing which happened is that he actually chose an example he said okay so you know these are the two pictures you see and he showed us and uh, not showed us he just explained it he said okay so let's say we are talking about a thief mm -hmm. uh, and is the person walking you know middle-aged uh, male uh, wearing a uh, like a suit and tie or, or a shirt and jeans, um, clean shaved. Uh, and then there's another person wearing like a cloth on a mouth okay. and a handkerchief or even uh, a baraclava. Yeah. Uh, and it's like a little, uh, you can say that it's a teenage somewhat or, or wearing, you know, like those covered masks, uh, not masks, just a, just a cloth. It's like, what do you think is it? Who do you think is a thief? And instantly nearly everyone, uh, literally in their minds like of course this guy with the cloth is a thief and yeah. then he's like really i mean you think thieves re in real life do you think thieves come with the cloth on their mouth yeah and 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 everyone was like whoa how could how we jumped literally because that's what we have seen in certain films absolutely that's what we have seen yeah uh, and it, it was bizarre and i was like this is what i want to study this is how i want to see the world like where you know, uh, in our culture, uh, uh, which is part of, uh, sorry, media is a big part of our culture. Mm. It's embedded in our culture now. So I'm sure that uh, you brought up media, the first one, and I had this example in my back of my mind. I was like, this was one of the biggest thing which shifted my uh, understanding of how I can see my own understanding of the world yeah. and how I see the world. See, that's really interesting because... I remember my daughter, one of my daughters is 10 years old and about three years ago, she was talking to um, my husband, her dad, about robbers and she was saying, because um, my husband's, for listeners, is, is, a police, is a policeman 
And she was saying to him, how do you know to catch the bad guys? And then she, she stopped and she said, oh, I know. They all wear stripy jumpers, don't they? <laughs> and my husband went, well, you know, as long if it was that easy, then that would be great. But it's that her perception as a child, because all the storybooks, the robbers, have stripy jumpers on and masks. And so she then transposed that into kind of what she thought the practical reality of life was, is that all bad guys and robbers go around with stripy jumpers on and masks and therefore are really easy to identify. But I think, and this links into what you you were saying, you know, happens happened to you in terms of kind of your experience there, which I think illustrates the point brilliantly, is that we are victims of what we consume to a certain extent. Um, and you make the point about the media, you, you bring in the media. I think the media have a huge part to play. And that can be, when I say media, I mean internet, I mean um, written, print, you know, anything that you hear, YouTube, social media, anything that we can consume. I think they have a really big part to play in how we develop perceptions of well, everything, but in particular, what we think someone or an innocent person looks like. Um, and one of the cases I wanted to mention was that of um, Dwayne, Dwayne George. He was helped by the Cardiff um, Innocence Project in, um, I think it was 2014, that his case was overturned by the Court of Appeal. And all the media reporting around him was immediately um, connecting him to his membership of a gang, um, his gang background, how his group of friends moved in gang circles, all these kind of things. And actually, he was convicted on a piece of gunshot residue on his coat. And his appeal was eventually, or his conviction was eventually quashed and, and overturned because that piece of gunshot residue was retested as testing had moved on and was found incapable of being able to support or being able to evidentially support the fact that, you know, that residue held him responsible for the offence, for the shooting. Hence why his conviction then became um, overturned by the Court of Appeal. But the way that was reported, and even after his conviction was quashed, there's, a, there's, there's bits and pieces on YouTube, the way it's reported in the press was gang member has conviction overturned. And it was really, it was, it's, you listen to that. And unless you pick up those things and, and have the ability to question and check yourself, it's really difficult, I think, as a member of the public not to go, oh, oh, well, that's, you know, gang member. He's a bad guy. You know, it must have been him. It must, you know, and, and you hear that reporting initially. Um, and if you're a member of the public out there, why would you why would you not necessarily question what you read and what you see? Um, and we hear we hear every day, don't we, in the news about kind of false media, false reporting, false news reports and things like that. I'm, we're not talking about that. We're talking about the portrayal in the media of things that we consume that then help us form our opinion of what this, you know, feeds into our opinion of what this innocent model, innocent people should look like. And your point there at university illustrates that perfectly. 
Yeah, there's there's one uh, interesting research which uh, I would like to plug in about the media and why it is so effective in uh, literally changing half of our software on what we op- operate. So <clears throat> uh, evolutionary biologist, his name is um, Eric Weinstein. I th- uh, Brett Weinstein, yeah, sorry. Uh, so he actually was explaining it and part of some of his research is around these social issues uh, the screen which we see things on mm. was not there in our society just a few hundred years ago, actually, maybe 150 years ago. And uh, what it does is that um, it actually becomes that place where we before used to look uh, at maybe leaders or successful people because, uh, and, and we used to learn and adapt that for survival, for status, for whatever reason, for social connections. Now we associate screen, TV, media, anyone on there is authority mm. unconsciously. Yeah. And secondly, we associate it to be successful means on the top of the hierarchy. Mm. So unconsciously, if you're on TV, even even if you don't care about TV, if someone is on TV, at some point you're like either successful or oh amazing. Some whatever it's 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 a it's a sense of achievement to be there. Mm. And then authority. Mix two things together. Whatever it comes out of the screen, media, press coverage, either it is authority or the hierarchy to copy it and 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 and, and imitate it. So it's an actually evolutionary behavior which is already in our society and now it just happened that it's taken over through the tv and of course we give it attention and we want to know and and this was useful you know you want to know from people who are at authority that who is dangerous Mm. and that's exactly what our ancestors is like you want to know you look outside the window yeah you want to know who is dangerous and if they tell you it's them who's dangerous, then you better watch out because at that time it was really necessary maybe at some point that, okay, you know what, if people from the other village are coming, probably they might, you know, do something violent, let's Mm. say. And I'm not talking about all of humanity at certain points. This is important for your protection. But now it's, it's, it's a completely different hacking of our system where we not only wanting extra negative news for places which doesn't really affect us, Mm. but the negative news from places which we might never ever go affects how we behave now here in our local situations and local scenario. So it is, of course, if we consider it in that, you know, a realm. Yeah. The media and the portrayal of how it's being done, it's crucial. It's literally your grandfather, who is also part of some committee in the village where you live, you know, it's a historical, is telling you every day that this person who looks like this mm. and wear things like that is the person who killed, I don't know, your distant aunt. What yeah. what, what 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 else are you gonna think other than hatred? Well, you I think we are so used to our media, um, you know, giving us information, which, you know, they should. But whether even if we disagree with it, we've still consumed an element of it. And I think even over time, what we hear, what we see and what we consume brings us or, or helps us form the opinion of what an innocent person, you know, looks like. And you know, even as small kids, when you get 
you know, my daughter turning around to saying, oh, the bad guys wear stripy shirts. Even then, that's from like, she, you know, she was too young to listen to the news or really consume any of the um, kind of mass media. She was getting that from storybooks. And so identity and what innocence, what we perceive an innocent person to look like plays in from a very, very young age when you think about it. And so by the time that we get to adults and we're taking notice of what the news says, we're, we're listening, we're getting our media, getting our information from mass consumption in lots and lots of different places. When the media is telling you one thing, um, you're going to start, you know, unless you check yourself to question it, it's going to start feeding in there somehow. Um, and then before you know it, you're making associations, whether that be with race, whether that be with religion, whether that be with lifestyle, you've made those associations. Um, and then, and I can only imagine, um, being in a courtroom and seeing somebody and trying then to put that put those assumptions to the back of your mind and absolutely only deal with what you need to in that courtroom, which is the evidence that you're being told to. I don't think that's possible for anybody to do, yet they have to. That's what our, how our jury system operates. But I think there's, um, you know, there's, there's biases that, that exist that we form over time from the media um, and they must infiltrate those decisions um, as part of the criminal justice process. And that brings me on to, I suppose, the next point that I wanted to discuss with you in terms of another influence, I think, is how defendants are presented in court. Um, my experience of, of being in court as a law student and beyond in terms of kind of um, seeing how 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 cases play out is that, you know, you, the defendant is often, some, well, sometimes handcuffed. They're sitting in a space um, that is behind, often behind perspex, although that's clear, you, you can see them. And of course, they're not the best versions of themselves. They're not animated. They're not smiling at you. Um, they can look intimidating. They can look scared. They can have every kind of emotion playing out on their faces. Um, but instantly, you know, you, you, I know if it was my mom, she'd see the handcuffs and immediately she'd be going, that person's violent. That's why they're handcuffed. That's, you know, they're violent. Oh, he looks very stern, you know, or anything like that. All of that portrayal, again, mixed with what we've already got from mass media and, and, and that, that consumer public consumption of information, those kind of images then just reaffirm the presumptions that we've already made um, in terms of kind of seeing those individuals in those spaces. There's any uh, any specific example that comes in your mind, maybe in a court case? Um... Yeah, so one of my, one of the IPL clients, um, Leon Wilson, who I speak to most weeks, he told me that um, in his case, he um, had an all white jury. He is black and he was being, um, he was on trial with a number of other co-defendants. And 
he was speaking to me because we were speaking about the events of this of the past few weeks with George Floyd. And he was speaking to me about when the jury delivered the verdict in his case. And when they came back with guilty, he stood up, he reacted, he stood up and he he shouted at the jury and said, um, you know, I hope you're happy now. You've convicted an innocent man. And he told me that two, the two female members of his jury then burst into tears. And reflecting on that point, he said, you know, I look like an angry black man because, and I, I wasn't, I was, I was overcome with emotion because I, I, I've been in prison now for for the years and I didn't commit the crime for which I've been convicted. And they just convicted me of that. Um, and he was fairly sure, as as I'm sure a number of my clients that are on the um that are clients of the Innocence Project London are who are black, that his portrayal, firstly, in court, the way and he was handcuffed in court, um, the way he was kind of portrayed in court had a had a influence over the jury, but also his race had an influence over the jury, which I know we'll come on to talk about. Um, but he was really conscious of what, you know, what he looked like to that, to the jury. And, you know, throughout he wasn't smiling. He wasn't the best version of himself. And all the pros- all the jury were hearing were um from eyewitness accounts of various types of knives that were used. I think there was a, we counted about 15 different descriptions of one knife, um, ranging from, you know, small knife to big knife. Um, And then looking at him who, you know, there he is sitting in the dock along with his co-defendants, you know, not being the best version of, of himself, not being animated, not smiling, obviously looking worried and probably very slightly grumpy throughout the whole process, which you would expect. Um, and, you know, I've got other clients that were very similar that um, have, have faced similar situations in terms of being tried alongside other people or being on trial alongside other people um, that would be looking not their best in a courtroom. And then, you know, why why would they be when they're maintaining their innocence and they think they shouldn't be there? Yeah, we judge our heroes from their best and the criminals from their worst moments. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a really good yeah, that's a really good line. Yeah, it's actually the problem with our compartmentalization and fantasies of someone who we want to put it on a wheel of like this inspiration and then they have to be all good and then anyone who's bad they got to be all bad. Bad, yeah. And that's not how humans work. Humans are extremely complicated. And every time you hear like, oh my God, that guy or that person or that girl had this side. I, oh my God, I couldn't. It's like, we should now know that humans are extremely complicated. They have great capacity to do great things, but that doesn't mean still there won't be some issues going on around their life. And that's exactly the problem when the... it's 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 um it's I think we'll talk about it further on about they versus us, which is a big big problem. Mm. This problem has been there since we are in small tribes living in caves, probably, and that's how a lot of biases have been developed. Uh, but yeah, I mean, and and uh, just to just to bring back around these biases, which are so deeply ingrained. 
sometimes at some point, uh, some of uh, the psychologists and evolutionary biologists say that on 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 top, it does look really ridiculous that how our impulsive buying works, how people spend so much money and make those stupid decisions. You know, mm. this is just general, not not even when we are deciding how to interact with someone who looks different and we consider them them. It's just for your own self-interest, we can't make really rational decisions. And that's a, a economist were saying, oh, yeah, we were, you know, rational beings and we make decision. And uh, and then the psychologist came is like, oh, my goodness, humans are fool. Like they make such self-sabotaging decision, even they have the information. And then there were further reasons of like, no, 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 wait, wait, wait. It depends. Like there's a lot of different games going on. You know, if you are in some sort of a parenting mod, your loss and win is completely different. Mm. I mean, your decision, your biases changes. Your way of sacrifice dealing with things changes. But if you are in a mating mood, mm. it, it, you don't make those decisions at all. Like from economic point of view, maybe it looks like uh, a bad decision. But from Gene's point of view, that's, that's exactly what it the person needs to do so probably you know to to just to bring a different like just just this angle of biases itself were at some point um practical let's make it practical so that's why it continued in humanity so let's say if you and this is a, a pretty well developed research around um biases and it's the reason why i wanted to mention it is because we if we feel that we have biases, it doesn't mean that we now start to hate ourselves because then it's self-defeating because now you hate yourself. Like mm -hmm. the whole point is to be more compassionate. And if you are not compassionate to yourself, you can't reflect it. So it's a, it's a very complicated, long process for how biases are developed around others, you know, because maybe at that point you got to do a quick decision around is it an animal it looks like a person different person what does he have in the hand what symbol on yeah. the neck you know you literally had few seconds to decide so the people who did not make quick decisions you know why those decisions didn't stay because they didn't survive unfortunately but it doesn't mean that it's not like you know in us like uh, the 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 whole scenario of understanding uh, these biases, it's not that, oh, now we have it, it's hardwired, so we can't really do anything. Yeah. Yeah, it's not that. It's it's because which one are, which which part of your reaction on your behavior you are falling onto, which, what is tipping? At that point, this what became primed. And now if we are not in that situation, there is definitely an option actually by research. There's been thousands of paper written through meditation, through mindfulness, through self-reflection, through understanding various different Zen methods uh, through fMRI uh, uh, that you FMRI? can... FMRI? FMRIs, MRIs. Yeah, they would put people, okay. meditators and everything into these MRI scans. Uh -huh, okay. And and that's, that's how the meditative uh, scan studies actually were developed. Uh -huh. I think it's been more than the first one which i heard was in 2012 so it's uh, which i heard so i'm sure it's way before that going on so they see how just the meditation would change the structure of our brain itself 
literally just meditating and these monks and everything, how neurons, how our neural connections, some of the hardwire one are now reshaped by actually these kind of reflection and meditative exercise and understanding. There's different ways. I mean, this is just one example which I'm using. Mm. But the whole, the, 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 the point is that, yes, you can jump into the conclusion, but there is a hope. And like, thank goodness that there is a hope. But uh, that is a really deep issue. Like, definitely. I mean, this has been going on, I don't, like, I, forever. So to not pay attention to this, it's, 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 it's a great, great and grave, uh, I think, tragedy. And I, I, I mean, I'm grateful that you are, you know, bringing this up, and especially in the context of uh, our justice system. No, I think it's I think it's a really important point that we need to acknowledge and also one that I think we need to talk about a little bit more because bias doesn't just come from um, kind of what we see from the person in front of us. Going back to your, you know, the point you brought in earlier from university about which one was the robber, the guy in the suits or the guy with the face mask that was young, dressed in black and, you know, looked dodgy. I think we get a visual impact that forms and feeds into our bias, but also it can also come in the fact of what we hear sometimes. So one example is a few of the clients that whose cases we're working on, on the IPL, they have what I would describe as chaotic lifestyles maybe. They might sofa surf. So they might have a, have a, a fixed address but they don't stay there they sofa surf they sleep on you know different different places different floors um and actually sometimes that might be the lifestyle that they choose or it could be the lifestyle that they've been forced into through you know various situations or circumstances um they could have a number of partners and a number of children with different partners they might have um, a history of drug taking. They might have a history of petty crime for whatever reason. But all of those facts and situations and information feed into us and our decision making. And I think it goes back to the point that you made at the very, very beginning, that if we can't relate to that, then that's an alien concept to us. And sometimes that alien concept falls on the side of the negative. And that feeds into our presumption of this, what this innocent person looks like. And immediately you're thinking, well, they, they are dodgy. That's definitely, there's no smoke without fire, as my mum says, over pretty much a lot of things. Um, but I think, I think those kind of things absolutely have an influence. And not just previous convictions, which are or sometimes aren't brought up in cases, depending on, um, you know, whether those convictions will show a propensity of the individual to carry out the crime for which they appear in court. Um, but... Other, you know, not just not just colour, and we'll touch on that in a minute in terms of race, but other aspects of lifestyle help us form an opinion over whether someone is guilty or not. And if you come from a background where you've never experienced any of those things, and as I, re as I say again and reiterate the point of the alien concepts, then your mind's going to be trying to wrestle with those. Um, and also the other massive information 
And you're going to be forming an opinion on that person. And that opinion might not be favorable, regardless sometimes of what the evidence shows you. It may not be a favorable opinion. Um, race, I think, is a big thing. Yeah. Um, more, more over half of the clients on the Innocence Project London are black. Um, and they are black men who are maintaining their innocence in a prison system where it's very difficult to do so. And um, I know from two of them at least that their juries were white. Um, And I think the recent events pertaining to George Floyd recently have highlighted, especially I think, two white people, how actually they struggle to talk about these issues. We struggle to talk about the fact that someone's colour of their skin influences our judgment on them. And unless we're aware of that, and unless we check that in our decision-making processes, especially when it comes into court, um, then, you know, there's always going to be a bit of a question mark for me over whether jury decisions we can honestly say aren't going to be based on someone's appearance, someone's colour. Um, and as I've said, you know, someone's, someone's lifestyle and not just on the evidence, which is, is what they're supposed to deliberate on. Um, yeah, yes, yes. By the way, for your mom, there's actually a thing with which only smokes that's actually uh, dried mushroom. Uh, one of the types of mushroom, if you burn it, it doesn't really, have any flame it literally just smokes for an hour without any fire okay uh, this is actually one of the reasons <laughs> how humans uh when they went you know north and uh, they they used it to keep them warm for long periods of time but that's the one which i'm saying it's it's like people make hats out of it if if it catches flame it wouldn't actually burn at all it would only have smoke <laughs> i'll let her know <laughs> But I think, I think actually that point I made about the no smoke, the analogy, that's a generational thing as well. Um, And I think it's very, very difficult because I had, um, this is, this listeners, this takes us off on a little bit of a tangent, but I think it's one that's linked. So I had a conversation with my mum about George Floyd Um, and she, I said to me, I was trying to explain to her why in response to Black Lives Matter, you shouldn't say all lives matter because black lives matter aren't saying that all lives don't matter or only black lives matter. Um, and the way that I tried to phrase it to my mum was that since when have you needed a movement because you've been judged on anything that you do by the color of your skin. And it was only at that moment that she then went, Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And when you take that back and strip that back to our criminal justice system, I, I know we have a jury system and I know around the world our system and our court system and our court process, especially the way the jury deliberate and the way evidence is presented in court in terms of that adversarial system, I know it is renowned and I know in some ways it is leading and I know in some ways um, it works and it and it's what we've got and it's not likely to change in the near future. But I don't think we can buy, be naive enough not to think that actually 
can we really rely on members of a jury not to look at race, not to look at lifestyle and all those things and and make a decision that leaves those factors out of their judgment? Yeah, I mean, um, here comes a very interesting uh, chemical which we have discovered, actually uh, oxytocin. Uh, This is the one, it's wonderful, that's actually the chemical which uh, creates a feeling of bonding created with mother and um, their siblings and uh, family, all all that. Uh, um, So it's a wonderful, uh, it's the one which, you know, give you that tribe feeling that, oh yeah, you know, everyone is with us and we are one and all that. I'm I'm using it, uh, just the name of oxytocin chemical, because this is one way of how our modern scientific uh, Western rationalization of certain particular chemicals uh, and and very complicated things associated to one chemical uh, are are talked about. I I am aware that it's, you know, as we are discovering more of it, we are realizing this this is just another way of oversimplification. But for the sake of argument, it's easier to talk about, you know, what happens in the brain. This is the chemical which activates. And so it's a wonderful chemical, you know, shouldn't we give it to everyone <laughs> in the jury? And it's they're like, oh my goodness. But there's a problem with that. It actually acts exactly the opposite. If you think that it's them, the moment you think okay. it's them, then you'll be extra harsh. So the problem which we have as a human anyway is like extra empathetic, mm. which creates a problem when you are extra empathetic, because the out, um, you can say the balancing factor of that becomes that you become apathic to balance yourself towards anyone who you think is not you, not us, not in us. So, I mean, what you were saying in in the jury, there's a really interesting example uh, of uh, of this experiment hmm. in Netherlands. Okay. Yeah. About these these things, you know, how can we rely on the jury? And yeah. I I mean, it's crazy that we think as a human that we are not hackable. And then now by using social media uh, and, and by how much marketing strategies out, we are easily hackable. One small billboard mm. can literally change our way how we spend. Can influence us. Yeah. And, yeah. And, 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 and with social media, with targeted market, with elections, that's how gullible we can be. You know, and it's even crazier. This is a very rigorous research that they take people um, and uh, their uh, limbic system or, or, or you can say the you know, the base response of your brain, uh, when you ask people questions uh, about, you know, immigration or how, you know, about different liberal uh, policies or how about others which they consider. If the place is clean and if the place which they are uh, doing this experiment has nice smell and they are not hungry, People, same people, double-blind studies, would respond way liberal, you know, uh, and if they are hungry and if the place, uh, they, they put something in a bin and smelly, suddenly people would become conservative. Uh, and that's how crazy it is 
that and we think we are not hackable so 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 here's and this now i come to the um uh experiment what they did was that they they uh, they asked them the conventional philosophy trolley problem where if uh, there is one person on a track and then there are five person on the track trolley is going towards five people but if you pull the lever it would change the direction and kill one person so you know by your action would you actually kill one person to save five it's different answers you know it could be totalitarian answer where yeah where mean justifies uh, like uh, sorry and justifies mean so it doesn't matter you get different answer but what they did was that they um give it give this person a name which gives them an identity yeah and then if they give them a name which is closer to the netherland name mm. uh and then suddenly they want to save it even there are five people over there and then what they did they they changed it um they gave it like a name which is maybe german so world war okay. yeah there's a bit of problem bit of a, or or a bit more like um asian um middle eastern name and they gave them oxycotton uh, oxytocin sorry oh, oxytocin would be <laughs> you're renaming <laughs> the drugs now. yeah sorry sorry <laughs> oxytocin uh, a chemical and what happened is that then they became way more to save the person who looked like oh sorry whose name is more closer to their mm. own nation mm. they really want to save it oh no poor i don't know dark what that's not a name in netherlands no. but <laughs> <laughs> uh but uh, so, and then they were very willing to totally throw off the guy <clears throat> who either from german or middle eastern name something like that so that's you can repeat that uh, experiment but there's a good news in it actually so we were thinking oh my god we are hardwired like even people in netherland yeah. uh, what can we do this is crazy i mean it's so crazy there is another experiment that uh, they they showed them face uh, faces of different races so you sitting there you are the most liberal person you're sitting there and you see the face which is very different your brain suddenly reacts instantly them Mm-hmm. without like it, it's i think it's 20 milliseconds uh something like that if i'm correct i hope i'm correct <laughs> it was point yeah 20 milliseconds that's how we react the reaction to the to the, it's before the second passes but the good news is and it's so crazy we are also hackable and that's the point which, which i made mm. if you put a baseball cap on this on the person and then it becomes about yankees or or reds some team then it doesn't matter now what race it is it matters what symbol they are wearing yeah. and then suddenly it becomes so then we actually can change who are them and who are us so we can make those people who we are somehow hardwire to consider them into us by actually you know uh, like somehow like okay no no this is this this property uh, it's same team now it's all about you filed an association yeah, of some yeah. sort yeah and, and i see a great uh, potential in it and as any potential there's a huge danger because then now someone and that's how it happens people manipulate a lot of people into considering um people who you're hardwired to be us as them you know mm. that's how they create uh 
much more isolation and uh, you can say conflicts in in people who shouldn't be thinking at all uh, historically uh, that they are them but the great potential is that we definitely have a lot of potential to be compassionate and that's what nationalism was at first you know mm. you become uh, away from tribal and you just care about nation and hopefully if we have made that jump hopefully we can made the jump which you are inspiring for which is to when we see someone even though we have this reaction we still have this compassionate blanket of us and then yeah okay we probably i don't know at this point judge yeah this is another thing which we talked about you know like it's just the the actual concept of judgment itself yeah i think i think all of what you said resonates with me actually but interesting enough i think it resonates with the work that the students do on the projects because in terms of they come in not really realizing their biases in terms of kind of the judgments that they've made against people, how maybe some of their their mass media consumption has influenced their presumptions of different people's situations. And I think one of the hardest things a lot of my students say is when they're first given the case and they suddenly, they have this sudden realization that the person there whose case they're working on isn't this innocent model that they had in their minds that and also that they'd love to get them out of prison in nine months which also um have to let them down on that front that that doesn't happen i mean for example the cardiff innocence project works on Dwayne george's uh case for five years so mm. you know a, a, a significant amount of time that they worked on that but um that's one of the hardest things that they suffer with in terms of struggling to see that and the easiest example I can give you is that someone who has, I don't know, previous convictions for robbery, maybe, um, you know, handling a, handling a, handling stolen goods or possession of a firearm, isn't guilty of the crime for which they've currently been convicted because, you know what, just because you've got previous convictions doesn't mean that you're bad all the way through your life doesn't mean that you're the bad guy all the way through your life. Um, and one of my dissertation students actually wrote her dissertation around the gang narrative and how the gang narrative can influence, and when that's brought into court, can influence um, the jury members. And actually, when you have co-defendants, especially on the principle of joint enterprise and they're in court, um, I think the word of mentioning gangs, the implication of association with a particular gang. For the jury, I think that also, you know, part of that, part of our bias, we associate in this country gang to be not very good, to be associated with not very good behaviour, not positive behaviour, um, and sometimes very negative connotations attached to that. You bring that into the courtroom and have that perception um uh, developed in the case and at attached as part of the theory um, to the case, that influence has got to be quite significant on the jury. I don't think it, it can't be. And for me personally, take me back, what, maybe 20 years ago, before, before I studied law, before I 
learned to think more critically before I did any of my work on the Innocence Project London. Um, can I honestly say that I would have recognized any of the bias and the judgment, the judgments that I've made and have had a realization about the effects they have? No. And I'm ashamed to say that I would probably be making judgments about people from what I'd heard in the news and would be, you know, oh, well, you know, the, that person, that looks terrible. You know, they did that. There wouldn't have been any critical thought to question or challenge those decisions. And I think the one thing that innocence work does globally for anybody that works on it is it challenges you to think critically and to develop a critical perspective over over cases, over situations, over judgments that you make. Um, and we need to be aware of that, especially when it comes down to us thinking, you know, having this ideal innocent person. There is no ideal innocent person. There is no ideal innocence model that we can all relate to. Um, you've got to scrutinise the evidence. You've got to question it and you've got to really challenge yourself, I think, on it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, as my teacher have told me, you should be proud uh, of uh, any kind of self-reflection because we are really good uh, at self-judgment and that is the reason why we are good at judging others. Mm. So, I mean, it's, I mean, whatever uh, was going on at that time or in every anyone's yeah. life, I think, I think this is just a sprinkle, as I was saying, from I was also like, yes, I need to scrutinize myself like strictly. Yes, but with compassion, definitely build that up as my teacher have told me. Um, but I think, yeah, this is one big part of uh, my, yeah, my journey also, you can say, or, or, or people who I look up to or who I think have made um, real difference in their own life. And that has trickled down, you know, how... I think it's it says that tend to the part of garden which you can touch. Mm. Uh, um, it's it's and and not that they were trying to change the world, but I mean definitely they have changed me and so many other people. So if you change your consciousness, anyone we touch, that's that's that also brings that change. Um, they have also um, done this journey which you are saying themselves, and that's yeah. where that's where. I thought that, okay, is it is it really that good, this journey? And yeah, the big part was to meet the most strangest part of my own self. And that's why, you know, where I was born and now here talking to you. And sometimes, yes, sometimes when these two parts in my own brain talks, they are sometimes don't even recognize themselves, but that's the most beautiful thing that they are talking to each other, even though they are the most strangest part of our psyche or the world or the culture, yeah. whatever, you know, way someone's vocabulary allowed to look at it. And I think it is definitely um, one of a really, I would say, I, I, I don't, it's, I don't want to say good, bad or, or, or any word like that. I would say courageous path forward, which mm. could bring, it is pretty, it is a difficult path because we love our habits and this is against our habits. Yeah. 
So, 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 uh, yeah, it's a, a courageous path which could rectify a lot of things and finally would be reflected in our justice system or, or even way we feel or, or consider what justice is. That's what the topic of our first podcast was. Yeah, I think, I think, I think it is a challenge to ourselves to realize that when we go into those situations, especially in courts, that we've got to check ourselves. We've got to think, okay, so what are we basing these judgments on? What are we basing these presumptions that we've made on? Am I looking at the evidence that's been presented to me and making a judgment solely on that? Or, you know, is it because I'm making a judgment maybe because I can't relate to the defendant's backgrounds? Um, that I find them intimidating, therefore, you know, they must have done it. I think it's there's a responsibility now in terms of upholding what the criminal justice system is there for um, and also to ensure that, you know, the right people go, um, go to prison. And don't get me wrong, it's not cut and dry, it's not easy, it's a complicated process and I think as I said in the first podcast, it's a system and all of the aspects of that system have to work. But in particular, in terms of, of what innocence means, in terms of people, you know, being convicted for crimes that they didn't commit, I think there's important conversations to be had um, around external influences and, you know, how they, um, how they continue to influence the courtroom and people pass judgments on them. Um, and certainly for the feedback from my students is that without working on the Innocence Project London, they wouldn't have learnt that process of critical thought or to check themselves in terms of the judgments they make um, and the criticality that they now bring to scrutinising you know, not just the cases that they work on, but, you know, that that transfers into other areas of their lives as well. Brilliant. Brilliant. Qualms, Zen qualms. Uh, <laughs> they have this way of uh, asking questions, these Zen masters of uh, uh, various different uh reflective topics about life and behavior and the universe, whatever, which cannot be solved by logic. So it's a very tough problem because students then try to use their mind and the moment they use their mind they realize that how their mind and is failing them because of the biases they yeah. have because of the the cognition um uh, uh, box they are in and the only way to actually solve the qualm is to let go of the whole model which is that and that's how they Teach. And then build it back up again. Yeah. yeah. I don't think I call myself a Zen master, Reza, <laughs> but um, I will take the compliment. <laughs> perfect. Perfect. Okay. Is there anything else you no, want to add? No, I think um, I think that's a that's a good good place maybe to, to end it. Yeah, that's, that's great. Perfect. And if we can get some people thinking about it, then uh, brilliant. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot, people. No, thank hopefully. you. Yeah, no, no. See, see, see you. Uh, hopefully, we'll we'll do it. Uh, let's see in what format should we invite someone probably uh, yeah what, what I think are you we'll, we'll maybe have some guests on the next one Brilliant. or we can um 
I mean, there's just so many possibilities, aren't there, with where this True. goes. So um, we will be back with a, a different topic next time, I'm sure, Asa. Perfect. Okay. Bye, people. Thank Bye, you so everyone. much. Bye.